Now come the days of the king. May they be blessed. day does not belong to one man, but to all. Let us together rebuild this world, that we may share in the days of peace. Follow that. This is Aragorn. Now, why would I show you a clip like that from Lord of the Rings? Because it's the greatest picture of a coronation of a king that we have in modern film. And that is what this, there's a few uh, coronation of king psalms, uh, messianic technically psalms, because the word Messiah, as we're going to realize, is the word king and anointed one. It's all the same concept. Uh, but Psalm 2 is the best one. Psalm 2 is the biggest one. It's the brightest one in the whole psalms. And that's what we're turning to. So if you've got a Bible, go to Psalm chapter 2. Um, because we're going to dig into this. And, uh, and what we're doing through this series is not, so when I hit a technical song, I'm going to use the TV and kind of get into linguistics or whatever. But <clears throat> this is art. This is music. This is song. So you actually need your Bible. You need to bring it to church. You need to pull your phone out. You need to get your iPad out so that you can see the stuff I'm working through because I'm not always going to have the TV up here because this is the way we're going to work through the psalms a little different. And so here's what we got to understand. This picture of a coronation of a king is exactly what Psalm 2 is. It's a song that they would use in the establishing, Israel would use in the establishing of a king when he took rulership to say, this is your gig, this is the challenges, this is what you're about. And Psalm 2 is one of those. So 
Well, the first thing we've got to understand about it is it's going to be about a king and it's going to be about Jesus, which immediately presents a challenge for us because it's not immediately about you. So I'm sorry about that because that's tough because sometimes we fall asleep when it's not immediately about us. So I'll do my best to make it about you as much as I can. But the reality is this is sometimes you just need to let a text work its way to go, oh, it's about Jesus. It's a theological vision that then I can live in light of and figuring out what that theological vision is enough in itself to actually say, there's a thing here. This is how I'm supposed to live my life now rather than, well, quickly, how is it immediately about me like we tend to do in our devotional life? I remember um, when we were meeting as a core launch team as a church, uh, in 2009, 2010, three of our parents died during that time out of the 16 uh, of us that gathered. And I remember uh, when one of the, one of the young girls, um, uh, young ladies uh, who was going through, uh, her mom had a brain tumor and she was kind of dying as we were doing our core launch team meetings and they would Skype in to the meetings and then finally her mom passed away. And that Sunday I was preaching at the church that we planted Village Church out of South Delta, uh, it's about 30 minutes from our main site here in Surrey that, uh, that we record these sermons out of. And so, and so some of you at the other sites may not have uh, been out there, maybe those in Calgary, but uh, I was preaching there. I had the preaching assignment to preach there and she had just passed away and I didn't know what to preach. And so I preached Revelation 5 which was this image of the lamb who is slain and, and the elders are sitting around in the throne room of God and they're looking around for someone who can actually deal with history and deal with all the problems of the world and no one could be found and they start to weep and then the lamb who is slain comes into the throne room and they hand him the scroll and he opens the scroll and he holds the scroll in one hand and there's right hand which is the image of sovereignty over history because the scroll is the story of the world and I remember that's the only thing I could do is get up and say, listen, in the midst of pain, in the midst of tragedy, there is a king and he's holding a scroll and he has power, he has authority, he has sovereignty. And that's why you can get up in the morning. So as we're going through Psalm 2 and understanding the things about this king, understand, take your thing, take your problem, take your thing that's grinding you the most right now and just let this psalm and the truths that it says about God uh, uh, let you understand those things in light of the massive problems that you go through in life because the truths that these hit make life livable. It makes you get up in the morning and say, okay, someone's in charge. In the midst of all the problems, in the midst of all the temptations, in the midst of all the difficulties, in the midst of destruction of my life, there's a king and he's in charge of all things. And this is what exactly what the text goes through. So we got to understand it. I was reading a, a, a preacher um, on this text. Going, as I was studying, I was going through all these things. And I read this sermon from like the ancient times. It was like the 80s. And, uh, and he went through this text of Psalm 2 and he structured it in three movements. So that's what I'm going to do. So there's three movements in this text. And, uh, and so the first one is that we have a king. And this is found in verses four uh, to, verses, to verse nine. So listen to this. It's the concept that we have a king. That's the first thing we got to understand. So verse four says this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So stop right there. He laughs, meaning, um, this is fascinating, God is laughing, and what he's laughing at 
our people in the earlier verses, uh, he says this, the Lord holds them in derision. And who he's talking about are the people in verses one to three, which I'll get to, that are literally want to live their life the way they want to live their life. They want to say, I don't want God in my life. I wanna do, I'm smart enough. I want to do things my way. And God's response to that is that he laughs at them, which is amazing. He looks at people who say, I want to live my life. I'm smarter than you. I know that you've told me in your scriptures, this is the way to live life. All right, this is the way you should do worship. This is how you should treat people. This is the way you should do with the poor. This is the way you should do family. And I have chosen to do things my way. And his response is the only time in the Bible, verse four, that God laughs. He laughs at us because, and if you're new here, don't be offended because he's saying, you're dumb. That's what the laughter is. It's a response like, <laughs> oh, you're, you want to live your life as you want to live it without me in it. Oh, that's hilarious because you don't even know what tomorrow brings. And he's laughing at you the same way I laugh at my kids when they say dumb things, right? They go, hey, daddy, I can live life. I'm like, bah, you're a fool. Or like when my daughters are, like, are trying to punch me and they're swinging at me and I'm holding their heads and they're like, daddy, I'm going to beat you up. And it's like, yeah, whatever, kid, I'm busy. All right, so it's me laughing at them, right? It's, it's God when he looks at humanity thinking they can do things better than he can do them. I'm going to live like you're not a king. He laughs. That's his response. It's like, we think we're so smart. And you look at, you look at, um, I was thinking about an illustration for this. So think of Germans. <laughs> okay. So I know many Germans and I love you Germans. You're fantastic people. All right. Give a shout out if you're German. All right. And probably in Abbotsford, there was more shout outs. All right. Because because so Germans, I love Germans, all right? Um, but if you look back at, you are, here, here's the thing. In Germans, if you look back at uh, the last 150 years, you've created some problems. All right, go back through history. World War I, that was you. Then if that wasn't enough, you did a sequel. World War II. All right, and, and he, now here's the crazy thing. You killed 50 million people in the last 100 years, all right? 50 million, all right, would do to your, now think about it. If you look back at New Testament criticism and you think, who are the best New Testament critics in the history of the world? They're Germans. If you look back at philosophers and say, who are the best philosophers in the world? They're Germans. If you look back at the best automotive companies and you say, what are the best? They're Germans. If you look back, listen, at the peak of Nazism was the same peak as philosophy, science, New Testament criticism. You had the smartest people on the planet and yet you did the Holocaust. Yet you allowed Nazism to rise. Why is that? This is why. Because as smart as we think we are, that we're going to solve all of our problems. We're going to be so smart. We're going to do progression. We're going to be enlightened. God laughs because he's like, you're so dumb. Even your best efforts, even your smartest people cannot do anything. And so he says, he laughs at people who are like, I don't want anything to do with anything. And the beautiful thing about not laughing or laughing is he's also saying, if God's laughing, you shouldn't panic, right? In the midst of your life, when the nations are against you, as he's going to talk about in the verses, when people are turned against you, when people are treating you poorly, when your life, when your marriage is a mess, he's laughing, so calm down, 
chill, don't panic. He's in control. That's what he's trying to say. And then it says, uh, uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, verse five, and terrify them in his fury. There's the secret sensitive God, terrifying people in his fury, speaking in his wrath, saying, now here's what he says. Listen to this, verse six. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, verse eight. Verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so here's what God does. He installs a king in Zion, which was synonymous for Israel. And he says, you're my son, you're the king. This is what I'm gonna do. And it started with David, started with Saul and then David and on down the line. And so he installs a king. Now here's what happened. Israel wanted a king. And God kept telling them, don't, don't get a king. I'm your king. And they said, no, every other nation's got a king. We want a king. He's like, I don't want you to get a king. Read first and second Samuel. That's this story. I don't want you to have a king because if you have a king, all the money's going to rise up. The military's going to rise up. The men and women, all your horses are going to be, and you're going to start defining yourself by a leader. And I don't want you to do that. See, people still do that today. They define themselves by a leader, a politician, a pastor. I know people who literally lose their faith because pastors mess up. And it's like, listen, do not define your life vicariously through a pastor in your life because they're going to let you down. Don't define your life by me. I'm going to let you down in life. I'm going to forget your name. I'm not going to say hi to you in the hallway. My wife's going to let you down. We always say like, I know I, I do my best. We do our best, but let me save you the suspense. We ain't perfect. Right? Listen, my, I, I, we, we, I, I, don't invite Mark and Aaron into your heart. All right, invite Jesus into your heart. I'm a disaster. Listen, we tell, we tell our closest friends, the people who are closest to us, we, we often kind of look at them and go, hey, listen, you're the ones who could take us down. And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, because you're the ones who are gonna hear me swear on the golf course. It's Tourette's, but you might hear it. All right, you're the one who are gonna see us fight in our marriage, Aaron's fault, but you're gonna see it, all right? You're gonna see the disaster that is our life that we're totally imperfect. You're going to take us down. You're going to be able to be able to do that. Why? Because the vision of the Bible is that you don't invite leaders into your heart, that you invite Jesus into your heart. And here's what Israel had done. They said, give us a king. And so God said, don't take a king. I'll be your king. And they said, no, we want one. So then they got Saul. Saul was a disaster. Saul was jealous. Saul tried to kill David. Then they got David, the youngest of the one. He would fight the bears and the, and the tigers and the lions off. I'm not sure there was tigers, but there was definitely lions and bears. And he would fight them off the sheep and he became the king. And then he was a disaster. He's sleeping around. He's murdering people over and over and over again. But they established this kingship and God establishes it and says, okay, this is what it is. Second Samuel 7 God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, David, and you're going to have a kingdom that will last forever. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where there's this kingdom that gets established forever. And he says, every nation will be yours. I'm going to establish your kingship forever, which skeptics look at and they say, well, that's a problem because Israel hasn't had a king 570 years before Jesus. They haven't had a king since then. There's no real king. So what are you talking about? He's going to establish through David, a kingdom that will last forever. And this is where we begin to realize we have a king, a king behind the king. See, even there's a hint in it. Look at verse two. He says, the kings, 
of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together and the, uh, against the Lord and against his, the word is anointed. Underline that word anointed because it's the word Mashiach in the Hebrew. Mashiach. What do you think the word Mashiach sounds like? Messiah. Mashiach. Messiah. I have a king. Yes, I'm talking to a king, an earthly king, but there's a king behind the king. There's a king over the king. His name is Mashiach. If you go to New York, you might find in the subway posters from the Jewish community saying Mashiach is coming. Be alert and be ready, which is really good advice because from a Jewish perspective, the Mashiach, the anointed one, there's one who's going to come. He's, he's a king behind the physical king called David and he's gonna come one day. And of course the Christian story is he's already come in the person of Jesus. He's already showed up. And so there's this reality where there's a king behind the king there's a true king, which is why the New Testament at least six or seven times uses Psalm 2 to say we're talking about Jesus. In fact, this Psalm is declared over Jesus in his baptism and his transfiguration. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is God bringing back Psalm 2, establishing it over Jesus' life. And of course, Jesus is walking around saying, I'm, I'm bringing about the what? The kingdom of God. I'm a king and I'm here to rule, I'm the Messiah. So when the New Testament calls Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. That's a title, Mashiach, king, anointed one. He's the true king. He's the king behind every king. He's the one that all of this story was actually pointing to, that more has happened in the person and the work of Jesus than we oftentimes give credit. N.T. Wright wrote a book called Jesus and the Victory of God. I love that title because it's saying Jesus did more than we think he did. He actually, in his cross, in his life, established a victory over Satan's sin. So we're looking at it and we're like, well, it says, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. We're like, well, when did that ever happen? I don't understand. When did that happen? That hasn't happened. God is... It has in the person and work of Jesus. Do you know what, over the last 2,000 years, how many people have come to know Jesus? Billions. And where are they from? Every nation, every tongue, every people group, every ethne has come to know Jesus. If you want to ask the question, where is Christianity growing today? It ain't North America, white evangelicals in the suburbs. That's not where the epicenter of Christianity is. You want to know where it is? China. Latin America and Africa. 3,000 people come to Christ a day in Latin America. 3,000. This is the nations coming to Jesus. And so the reality is we begin to realize that these promises over the true king, he is winning. The gates of hell will not prevail against him. He did establish a kingdom. He is a king who's ruling and reigning in heaven right now. And he established a way to be free. He defeated Satan, sin, death, how those things affect your life. And, so, and he's saying, listen, I'm winning. Yes, I understand that, you know, the schools that your kids go to teach this and teach that, and you don't really like it. And you feel like you're losing a culture war. I get it. But listen, Jesus is winning. I, I get that, okay, it may probably be illegal to be a charity in my lifetime as a church and I might be thrown in jail for preaching the Bible. I get it, but Jesus is still winning. Never through history have people gone, well, you know what? My giving to the local church, it's not gonna get me a tax receipt, so I'm gonna stop giving. And you're not even a Christian if you think like that. You think 
that Christianity's losing because people don't say Merry Christmas or do say Merry Christmas in Starbucks? No! You think because people are gonna become Christians because capitalism's winning or socialism's winning or your politics because Trump wins or Trudeau wins? No! Jesus is gonna win because he's a king on a throne no matter what happens. All through history, how has the church grown? Through persecution, not through power. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's the point. So you might be, we're not winning. We're winning. Jesus is winning. I remember this old New Testament professor I had. I just thought of this right now. He would get up and teach us and he went through all the whole New Testament, but then the end of the at the end of the class, we'd done a whole semester and we only had half a class on the book of Revelation because he just took up all the time with other stuff. So he's like, okay, we got an hour left. The book of Revelation. We're like, how are you gonna? He's like, here's the deal. Um, let's take a break. Jesus wins. And he was done. But that's it. Jesus wins. That's how he's getting the nations. You're like, oh, I can't believe God didn't give him the nations. I can't believe the son didn't get the possessions of the earth. I can't believe he didn't break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. He is, he is, he did, he will. That's this king. And so there's a king. You notice how many stories are about kings and how they're ruling well, and then they lose rulership and then things go wrong, so they need to make sure a kingdom gets established again so things go back to normal. Every story we tell, Lord of the Rings, Lion King, Frozen, Shakespeare, Robin Hood, over and over and over. There has to, this is what we do. We pine for a king in our hearts. That's how we function. That's why we write these stories. We know the story. The cruciform pattern is written into every story we tell almost. And even if we don't tell those stories, we do it in our lives. We look for a king. We look to pop stars, celebrities, billionaires, athletes, and we're like, these people are gonna define my life. They're gonna be a king for me. And here in Psalm 2, he says, oh, there's a king. That's why you pine after it. And his name is Jesus. Now, there is a king. That's movement number one. Movement number two, so there is a king, we have a king. Movement number two is this, now don't be offended. We hate the king. What? You just woke up. Pay attention. Ears, eyes, come on little boys and girls. All right, that's Sunday school talk, okay. First one to three, listen to this. <clears throat> Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart, underline the word bonds, and cast away their cords from us, underline the word cords. So here's what the nation, here's what you and I do. Forget the nations. This is what you and I do collectively because nations are just a collection of human people making decisions in their hearts and their minds about how to live. So what do we do? We look to God and go, we don't want you. I mean, look at that. Um, cast off their bonds and their cords. So that's the word yoke. The word cords is probably a better translation would be yoke. It's like, it's like 
It's not so much that uh, we feel that God imprisons us and we want to get rid of him. It's that he, we don't want to be owned. And that's what a yoke does. It says, I own you. It's like a bridle in a horse. So my kid, uh, my, my second daughter, Hayden, she loves riding horses. She rides a horse uh, every week. She goes to the stable and rides a horse and does a great job. She has to put the bridle in its mouth, has to come there. And she asks for a horse all the time. Can we have a horse? Daddy, please buy me a horse. I'm like, are you joking? You think, and my play is, I don't have enough money to buy you a horse, right? Now, don't tell her, but this week I was doing uh, counseling with a guy on the phone. I do this leadership uh, course. And he's like, man, you know what? I'm really struggling here. I'm trying to get rid of a horse. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, man, I just, I'm like, you want to shoot it? He's like, no, like, I just have this huge, beautiful, perfectly healthy horse. And, you know, I'd basically give it away. I'm like, shut up. And he's like, what, you want it? I'm like, no, shut up. Don't say that. And this is God, by the way. Speaking of God laughing, that's what he's doing to me. He's like, oh yeah, I want you to get a horse. Oh, you can't afford one? Here, I'm going to give it to you because I want to watch. Go. <laughs> oh, I'd love to see you with a horse. All right, that's God. He's trying to give me a horse. And I'm kicking the horse. Get away, horse. It's not a thing. So when you put a bridle in the mouth of a horse. You move it left, you move it left, you move it right. And then the horse does that because it's owned by you. So here's what we do. We say, get this yoke, this bridle away from us. Look at verse three. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. We don't want God owning us. We don't like to be owned. We don't like to be told what to do. I want to be free, baby, because I'm me. I want to be me. And this writer is going, be very careful. God has a right over you. And we don't like the fact that he has rights over us. Our impulse is to say, get away. George McDonald, who is a massive influence on C.S. Lewis, said people in hell, the one principle he says of hell is, I am my own. I am my own. Get God away from me. I don't want him in my life. And we see it in kids. See, kids in the early, probably in the first zero to 10 years, kids don't want your yoke away from them. They want to be close to you, right? They want mommy around, daddy around. I had a nightmare. I crawl into your bed. You know, all of that. They want to be close to you. They want your yoke as a parent around you. That's what they do. But then at some point, I don't know what happens, 11, 12, 13, the devil gets in them. And all of a sudden, they start to act like they're fine without you, all right? They're just like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. You leave me alone. I don't need your fetters on me. I don't need your yoke on me, all right? And so this is what they begin to do. And you begin to realize, here's the principle of that, in the same way that this psalm is saying it. Be very careful to too quickly say, I don't want the yoke of God on my life. I don't want to feel like I'm uh, uh, burdened down by God. I want to be my own person. I want freedom. Be very careful, because that's what the nations do, because they hate the king. Be very careful, kid, that you don't chuck off your parents too quick. Because here's the reality. You should be leaning in and loving on your parents and taking everything you can from them for as long as possible. Because here's the thing. You don't even know what you don't know. And I, I took my... Um, Oldest daughter and my youngest daughter out for dinner this week. Uh, my middle one was out with my wife. They were doing a birthday thing. And so I took them out for dinner. And we have dinner and then they wanted dessert. And we're at this restaurant. They're like, okay, I want this little chocolate bar thing. I'm like, okay. So we get this little chocolate bar thing. It takes them 30 seconds to eat it. <clears throat> Done. I get the bill. 
I look at the bill and this thing was 10 bucks. Okay, $10 plus tax. So I put the bill, so we, so I'm like, okay, I gotta teach my kids about money. I'm not sure that like my oldest, I told you she was in the desert on her way back from a mission trip and her sandals were bothering her. And she said, mom, can I throw these sandals in the dirt and we'll just buy new ones tomorrow because they're making me uncomfortable. What? I took my sandal off and threw it at her head, right? Like, what are you nuts? That's not the way this works. Don't you know the price of a loony? Now, so I'm obsessed with trying to, so we leave and I'm in the car. I'm like, hey, Santa, uh, how much do you think that chocolate bar costs? She's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, 10 bucks plus tax. She's like, oh, wow. I said, you babysit. She's like, yeah. I'm like, how much do you make an hour? She's like, 10 bucks. I said, okay, so put yourself in the babysitting role in life. You're gonna go, if I told you right now that you could have that chocolate bar, you can eat it right here, but you're gonna have to go work for an hour and a half because 10 bucks plus tip, and you have to wash dishes, you have to play with kids, you have to change diapers, you have to put them to bed. By the way, she's already saying, I don't do babies, all right? I'm like, what? This is classic, right? It's like, doesn't fit the shape of my soul and my Enneagram number says babies aren't my thing, all right? So, so I'm like, Okay, so you gotta go work for an hour and a half to eat that chocolate bar. Would you still do it? And she's like, oh, no, not at all. I'm like, thank you. Be careful how quickly you wanna move out from my yoke, sister. <laughs> I'm the reason you eat that chocolate bar. You're out on your own, you're hooped. And that's the point of this text, kind of. A whole group of people who say, I don't want the cords of God on my life. Why? Because you think it's destroying your life and you don't get it. You don't get the kind of freedom that he brings you by giving you restraint. You don't understand that he has your best in mind just like a parent does. And so what do we do? We hate the king. Now you might say, oh, well, we don't hate the king. People love, skeptics go, they don't hate the king. This sounds like preachery stuff. They can't hate the king. Our culture loves God. Our culture is very religious. Our culture believes in God. Listen, this text isn't saying that people hate the concept of God or people don't like the concept of God. They hate the biblical God. They hate the God who shows up at Mount Sinai and says, be holy therefore, because I am holy. They hate the God that says, I am not gonna clear the sins of the wicked just like that. They hate the God who shows up and says, you have to love me more than you love your mother and father. In fact, Jesus says, you have to hate your mother and father in order to follow me. That's the God they hate. They hate the God who shows up and says, let the dead bury the dead. But I just want to go back and bury my dad. Jesus, I want to follow you, Luke chapter nine, but I'm going to just go bury my dad. No, let the dead bury the dead, bro. You got to follow me. If you don't follow me, if you love your family above me, you don't even know what a disciple is. I, no, no. <laughs> Think about, think, I, I remember talking to a guy in the early days of Village. He said he had a, kids in school, beautiful kids, beautiful house, beautiful job. One day, God wakes him up at two o'clock in the morning and says, hey, I want you to go downstairs in your garage. So he goes downstairs in his garage. He starts to pray and God says, I want you to sell your house, take your kids out of school, quit your job and go to the airport. And then I'm gonna tell you what to do. And he's like, what? So he sells his house, quits his job, tells his wife, not in that order, <laughs> um, and they go to the airport. 
They all go to the airport with the kids and they say, Lord, where do you want to go? They sleep one night in the hotel. Second day, God tells them where to go. They went to a poor country, third world country, served widows and orphans for six months. Then their visa ran out. They came back to renew it. It didn't get renewed. And they said, this is, I guess, what God had for us. And what do you think happened when they did that? When they went to their parents, when they went to their friends, when they went to their school, when they went to their family members, what do you think all of them said? Don't do this. It's irresponsible. Don't do this. Why? Because the gods of security and ease and comfort could you even hear God, friend, right here, all these sites, could you hear him if he called you to leave the comfort of your square footage and your shiny rims and your warm life and to go? Could you even hear him? That's the God we hate. The God who shows up and goes, I think I am more important than your parents, than your house than the beautiful school you've got. Following me and what I call it, that's the one we hate. That's the one we actually push back against, the one who takes our security. Now, think about the God who does that. It feels harder, doesn't it, to follow a God like that? That's why we hate him. He's got cords and the cords feel restrictive. But the reality is, as we know, the toughness of the call of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, is what makes it amazing, right? It's like, it's, it's my, listen, it's, let me illustrate this this way. It's Star Wars, okay? It's generational Star Wars. Like this, if you go to the original Star Wars, four, five, six, Luke Skywalker had to work to become good, all right? He had to sacrifice, he made mistakes, he had to be trained, it took time to be good, good, good with the lightsaber. You know what this generation of Star Wars has? Ray, basically, in 40 minutes, she's a Jedi, she can just fight a Sith like, where did you She can kill Kylo Ren. Yeah, the, the, the Ren, they're just shooting people. They're all, they, they didn't even have to work for it. That's my generation. I want amazing things. I want to be a Jedi. I don't have to work for it. I just like 40 minutes in, I'm perfect. It's a generational thing. We don't want the hard way. And Christianity is the hard way. It's the way that feels like it because there's fetters, because there's cords. So we fight against the cords, but the reality is the cords are there to make us flourish. So how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know, how does the Holy Spirit make you aware that you're a Christian? Listen to this, it's gonna sound weird. It's gonna sound backwards. You know how you know you're a Christian? When you know that you hate God. Because when you become conscious of the fact that you hate God, it's only the Holy Spirit that can pull up that kind of, traumatic information and tell you you're a sinner who hates God, which is why you need Jesus in your life. If you deny that you're an enemy of God, then you're actually an enemy of God. But when you embrace it and go, yes, I am an enemy of God, that's when you know that the work of the Holy Spirit's actually happened in your life because you begin to go, man, I need to be saved from this kind of slavery. Jonathan Edwards said, it's not just disbelief in God that the gospel is trying to go against. It's the fact that we hate him. He wrote a book called Men Naturally Are God's Enemies. And he's reflecting on Romans 8, which says the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's the reality. Now, here's the last thing. So we have a king, we hate the king, but lastly is this, <clears throat> we need the king. Listen to verse 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You want to know, you, you, you have a king, you hate the king, you need the king in your life to actually change your life. This is what he's saying. You have to be persuaded, serve the king, kiss the king, rejoice in the king. You got to live in not a perishing mentality, but in a victor mentality. Some of you act like victims with everything in life. Everything's about you. Everything's victim. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. Christianity comes along and says, no, no, you're a conqueror. You're not a victim. You're a victor because you follow the king. You follow what he's actually done for you. So you have options. You can either live the perishing life or the life, he says, which is blessed in the end. Listen, a guy texted me after listening to the sermon on Psalm 1. He's a guy in pastoral ministry years ago. And he texted me and said, the perishing mindset lies to me. It convinced me that walking away from the highest calling I could have received, the pastorate, would be a wise move. That sacrificing the joy of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ would better serve me, laying it down on the altar of self. It convinced me that a life without my kids and my wife was the life I wanted. It led me to a place that I could look at the faces of my wife and kids and say, I'm leaving. It led me to a place where I was writing a suicide note to my children, explaining that it wasn't their fault. And then he says this in big, bold letters, but God, I know by the grace of God, my mindset has been divinely transformed to one of prosper. I know this by my desires. I now desire to be a loving, faithful, kind husband and father. I want to exalt Jesus. I receive forgiveness. I live free. I am grateful to be alive. This is what the gospel lays out for us. There's two things that we need in life. One of them is to feel like we count and the other one's to feel that we're loved. Kiss the king. You get both of those things. He gives you a purpose. He gives you design. He gives you a vocation and he fulfills because he kisses back. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased comes back on you. Now, Everyone, cross all the sites, just close your eyes. I'm gonna throw it to the lead pastors to pray for you, but close your eyes right now. I'll read a quote from you from James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor for 40 years in the same church, Presbyterian church. Here's what he says about this passage. I'll leave you with it and let the lead pastors pray for you. Close your eyes across the sites. Listen to this quote. The rulers of this world rage against Christ. Listen to this. But why should you? The hands he holds forth to kiss are hands that were pierced by nails when he was crucified in your place. One day he is coming as the great judge of all. On that day, the wicked will be punished. But today is the day of grace.